Sawabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm WOSA U.S. Marketing Manager, Jim Clark. This is our fifth episode in the podcast, but given today's theme, perhaps it should have been our first. Last time, I actually promised an episode on the Hemlinarda Valley, but we're pushing that back because today, June 20th, is Drink Shenan Day, so it seems the right occasion to finally show off South Africa's most planted grape variety, Chenin Blanc. Don't worry, we'll come back to the Hemlinarda next time. Obviously, this is an audio-only medium, but if you'd like links to the wineries we're talking about, maps of relevant wine regions, and some other visual aids, please go to our website, wosa.us, and click on the podcast tab. Chenin Blanc has a long history in South Africa. It's believed to be one of the first varieties planted back in 1655. For a long time, it was known as Steen, and it was only in 1963 that Professor C.J. Orfer, working at the University of Stellenbosch, confirmed that Steen and Chenin Blanc were actually one and the same. At that time, Chenin Blanc had come into special prominence in South Africa, and five years later, it surpassed Cinso to become the country's most planted grape variety, a position it still holds today. In 1990, Chenin Blanc made up more than 35% of South Africa's vineyards, but that changed a lot during that decade. After apartheid ended and South Africa could begin freely exporting its wines, a lot of Chenin was ripped out as growers hurried to satisfy the market demand of the time, which is very much focused on red wine. For the past couple of decades, Chenin Blanc has been pretty stable, occupying about 18.5% of South Africa's vineyards. That amounts to 17,103 hectares today which means South Africa is home to more Chenin Blanc than the rest of the world combined. South Africa may be very different from Chenin's original home in the Loire Valley, but it's taken to the Western Cape extremely well. The one thing I think that Chenin Blanc requires is cool sunshine, is what I kind of coined it as. And cool sunshine, whilst it sounds slightly awkward, I mean, you can imagine clear blue sky, a cool, cool day, but the sun shining. That is Shannon's ideal condition. Now, France, the Loire Valley, has plenty of cool, and they beg for sunshine. We have plenty of sunshine, we beg for cool. I'm Ken Forrester of the eponymous vineyard, Ken Forrester Wines in Stellenbosch. We have a 120-acre vineyard right in the heart of Stellenbosch, and we're focused on Chenin Blanc mainly and, and sort of red some southern Rhone varieties, Syrah, Grenache, and Mubed. We bought this property back in 1993 when South Africa was in a crisis. We were facing what was going to be the first democratic elections. And it was a time of immense hope, I felt. A number of people felt it was a time of immense darkness. A lot of people left the country and in the turmoil of the property market and the stock market that happened at that time, I decided the best possible investment I could make would be to buy the biggest piece of land I couldn't afford. And we bought 120 acres of prime, prime vineyard land in what's known as the Golden Triangle of Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch being one of the premium wine-producing regions, closer to the ocean than the town of Stellenbosch itself. We're about five miles from the ocean as the crow flies. And the ocean is the cold Atlantic, which lends us a wonderfully temperate climate, a cool climate, and the ideal space or place to produce likes of Chenin Blanc. And beyond that, more recently, Rhone-style blends, Southern Rhone-style red blends. 
that's basically the, the last 25 years in a nutshell of how we, we set about putting this together. Fortunately, there was a lot of Chardon Blanc on the property. Probably nearly 40% of the property was planted to Chardon Blanc. And the advice of the day was to get rid of that Chardon Blanc, just get a great big caterpillar and push that out and plant something like Sauvignon Blanc or Pinotage. And thank heavens, I just felt that it would be, if anything, insensitive or arrogant for me as a complete newcomer to arrive on the scene and to look at vines that have been in the ground for 20, 25 years and say, nah, you're not good. How would I know that? How did they possibly stay in the ground for 20 or 25 years if they were no good? I figured out that there just had to be some good in those vineyards. And if anything, I had a 25-year lead with the older vines. We've got vines that were planted in 1970, 72, 74, and those are all the heart of what we do. Those are some of our very, very best wines. Today, Ken's nickname is Mr. Shannon. He and a handful of other winemakers helped save the grape's reputation, demonstrating that what many thought was a simple workhorse grape was actually a noble variety, capable of making world-class wines and expressing terroir. A new generation of winemakers are embracing Chenin Blanc as well. Some of them are particularly focused on highlighting this diversity, making wines from carefully chosen vineyards across the Western Cape rather than focusing on single estates or regions. I think Chenin Blanc in South Africa is regionally divergent. If you have a look at the Schellenbosch, at, at the Schellenblanc in the Breedekloof, at Schellenblanc in Paul, at Schellenblanc in the Swartland, and then Schellenblanc in Stellenbosch, I think it's all quite different. If you're looking at cool, you've got to be either oceanic or perhaps in a river valley, or you need altitude. You need to be up on, on the side of a mountain somewhere to get cool. And so those are the ideal positions, in my mind, for Schellenblanc. And I think that it's pretty manifest that the best Chenin Blancs sort of out of South Africa are coming out of the coolest sites out of those. those because where a site is too warm, what happens is the fruit seems to bake off the Chenin and the vine seems to focus more on minerality. You lose the primary fruit, the apple, pear, quince, white fruit, melon. Those qualities seem to disappear and you end up with a different kind of saline minerality, which can be quite attractive. I mean, certainly there's some great examples of wines made like that. In the Loire Valley, you've got a natural acidity, which Shannon is known for throughout the world, and you've got a coolness that really does strive to produce those absolutely crunchy, crisp, fresh, white pear characters, quince definitely, and apple only in riper years. Whereas we almost default to apple. Apple is already, I mean, already right down on the apple scale when they, they're not even venturing into that in, in the Loire Valley. So I think they're degrees of, of the same flavor profiles that we're playing along. My name is Chris Arlight. My wife, Suzanne, and I started a company called Arlight Vineyards in 2010. Virtually our entire focus is making South African heritage wine as we see it, wines that are based on grapes that have been in South Africa for a very long time and have a very keen sense of South African identity. It's true that not very long ago, the South African wine scene was probably a little bit embarrassed about all the old wine Shannon that we had lying around. It was viewed as very much as a brandy grape, along with Colombar, and certainly didn't sort of have the same shine or respect as grapes like Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, at least not in the eyes of South African winemakers at that time. 
I think a lot of things happened since then that are really key to understanding what's happening in the Cape right now. Uh, typical, you know, I'm, at this point, I don't really know what typical is for Shannon or for the Cape because of the amount of variety that I'm seeing in our winery. I think it's a good idea if I sort of run you north to south and try to explain as well as I can the characters of our different parcels. Wine's a pretty mysterious thing, and the language of wine is even more mysterious. What people mean when they use certain words. So you're just going to have to allow me to explain things in the way that I see them or understand them. And if the listener can sort of translate that for themselves, then that's fine. So starting in the far north, we have the parcels on the area that's called Skirfbach. In fact, the wine of origin for Skirfbach, the official wine of origin, Citrustal Mountain, which is a peculiar choice for Savas because Citrustal is quite some distance south from that area. It's much closer to the town of Clan William. So these vineyards were kind of rediscovered by Rosa through friends that she had at Vinpro. And I think of all the recent sort of rediscoveries of old vineyards in the Cape, I still think Skirfbach is right up there. It's kind of a crown jewel of those mysterious old countryside vineyards. You know, there's really nothing out there. It's a few really salt-of-the-earth farmers that farm sheep and a lot of rooibos tea, sometimes a little citrus and other fruit trees. And then these parcels of old vines that are normally quite close to the houses, to the homestead. Bush vines planted quite wide spacing for generations or for years gone to the cooperatives. And thanks to Eben and Rissa and, and those people and Wilmuhan Rupert for his vision in letting Rissa do what she did. We've now got this resource and it's just, <laughs> it's such a pleasure. It's just an amazing, amazing place. Uh, every time you go up there, you get goosebumps. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody thought that far north up there in the middle of nowhere, there's going to be a vineyard hidden up in the mountains somewhere that's just going to blow everybody away. And that's exactly what's happened. You know? And I think Eben showed that from the first vintage. Um, and I'm hoping that our wines from that area rank among the more exciting South African Shenans at the moment. I've probably got cellar palate, but for me, that area in particular is, is quite remarkable. So we're starting up there. How to describe the wines. I think it's important to say as a qualifying statement that we don't add acid to any of our wines. So we always pick with acidity in mind and I like acidity in wine so I don't tend to pick very late what that does give us is almost quite a well controlled sort of experiment in that all the wines are picked to be naturally well balanced and bright and relatively energetic I don't like lethargic or thick wines you know I like wines that that are lively and that have a spring in their step so to speak so Skirfberg both farms have very similar soil so it's effectively quite red sand over a little bit of gravel, like a gravel strata, and then over very iron-rich clay. A lot of iron in the soil. That's one of the reasons we chose that name, Magnetic North. And it's very dry up there. We're looking at between 250 and, in a good year, 350 millimeters of rain. So it's right on the edge of what's possible from a water point of view with viticulture. It's also a reason why most of the vines are planted quite far apart, so that each plant has good root volume. In places like Skirfbach, if you tried to plant a density, everything would die just because there wouldn't be enough water per plant. So in a terroir like that, wide planting makes a lot more sense. So most of those vines are planted uh, what's called 10 by 10, which is 10 feet by 10 feet. If you had to describe the wine, every vintage is obviously a little different, but there are two different plots. The one is Odam, which makes hail crowds. That's 450 meters above sea level. And then just a little further south, about 10 minutes drive away, is Arbeitsend Farm. And that makes the wine called Magnetic North. 
So I've just described the soils that are common to both of those farms. The wines on Odam, which makes hail crowns and, and contributes quite a bit to cartology. Those soils and those wide-spaced vines and very low yields, the wines are, I would describe them as extremely vivid and kind of visceral. And very often, especially on Odam, we get orange, you know, like orange skin, sometimes venturing into orange blossom, but not normally too much white flower. It's a really vivid fruit. And you get the sense from those wines that they're just absolutely loaded with energy. They've got a lot going on. The scurfback parcels, you can't pick them at 13 alcohol because they'll be unpalatably acidic. They need to be 13 and a half, sometimes even closer to 14, which for us is very, very high. The acidity that we get up there is pretty full on. So <laughs> if you want the wine to taste nice, they need to be a little bit riper than, than most of the rest of our wines. And then on Arbeit's Ent, which makes Magnetic North, definitely more green, green gauge, green citrus, and sometimes something a little bit like elderflower, something a little bit like rooibos tea, those type of flavors. But the flavors are one thing. What really strikes you about the wines from that area is the, the palate. Just really like major drive on the palate. There's a lot of iron in the soil. And it seems to me that there's some kind of relationship to the power in the wine. You know, the wines are quite powerful and they feel quite structured. Then moving south to the Swartland, I think I could speak about the Paderberg with some clarity because we have a place there and, and um, have been working with Paderberg grapes for a long time. So Paderberg is a granite mountain, a granite outcrop, and it's quite a, an amazing neighborhood. It's where Adi is based and David and Nadia, Saadi, making wonderful wines. And obviously Eben, who's kind of one of the, the godfathers of the whole vibe. Those guys are there, and then Chris and Andrea also have good plots on the Paderberg. So that mountain is basically a big slab of granite and decomposing granite in, in sort of a sea of, of iron soils and shale soils. And granite is a hell of a thing. It's a wonderful thing just in general. The grapes that grow on the Paderberg, Syrah and Grenache and Shannon and, and Pinotage, they seem to do extremely well on granite. For me, Shannon on granite, I'm going to have to kind of go off piste a little bit here, but you know, in my mind when I taste the wine or when I think about a, a wine, I see it almost like a canvas of a certain color, and then there'd be a pattern projected onto that canvas of different shapes and colors. So where the Scovebach wines are almost like a tea-stained canvas with Hellcrantz being sort of broad strokes of orange and those type of colors, and Magnetic North is kind of a, like a fishbone or an arrowhead kind of pattern. It's difficult to explain, but for me, the Paderberg granite soil wines are like a really white, white, white canvas, like a pure white background very bright, very clean and pure wine with like a really, really fine, intricate green and lime green pattern projected onto it, uh, gray almost. That's how I see them. Flavor-wise, I would describe them as something like thatch, like a thatch roof. We have in South Africa, those new thatch roofs. It's always a bit of a giveaway of the Paderberg wine. And something like green citrus, like lime and thatch. And more and more often, I'm seeing clear elderflower kind of notes on those wines. And for me, if you pick Paderberg at the right time, it's absolutely brilliant. It's not often the wine that's going to get massive points from a journalist who's looking for power. But if you're looking for something for the dinner table that's fascinating and it's really lively and I don't know what a good way to describe them is, but maybe like pure or strict wines, you know, they're quite direct and straight and, and well-proportioned. And I think Paderberg is it's really beautiful. I think... For the sake of direct comparison, we can jump right to the far south of where we're working with Shannon, and that is the Stellenbosch coast, the False Bay coast. And I'd like to draw a direct comparison with Paderberg because they're both granite soils, very similar soils, in fact. 
but right on the False Bay Coast, we've got fantastic vineyards. Planted also in the late 70s, same as the Paderberg vineyards, same vine age. And that we bottle as Nautical Dawn. And we also use some of those parcels in Cartology. So if you compare that mountainside Swartland wine, which has got that really fine lime green kind of pattern, the granite soil wines from the coast of Stellenbosch, the canvas is still bright white in my mind. So I think that must be the granite thing. In effect, that really clear, pure, clean white background in the wine, ever so slightly salty. And then, but then Stellenbosch is different again to the Paderberg. There's, there's a little more kind of classic sex appeal in the wines, much more yellow fruit. They're a bit more obvious in a way and, and very appealing. Again, I described the Ristinov, those parcels that we use for Nautical Dawn as, as pretty athletic in that you can have plenty of flavor in wine and still have unbelievable acidity. I find that the direct contrast of the two granite soil wines, so the mountainside Swartland and the coastal Stellenbosch, quite fascinating. Where you'd expect Swartland because it's warmer, it's more sunshiny, to be a little more opulent or a little more rich. If you're picking for acidity, it's roughly 13 alcohol, slightly more or less every year, 13 to 13 and a half. The wines are, as I've described, quite fine and delicate, very pretty. Where the Stellenbosch wine, picked at the same alcohol for me, is much more raucous and bombastic and much more yellow fruit and floral and in your face, kind of a loud talker. Just totally different personalities. I find that so fascinating about Shin. Those are three major kind of hot spots for us with Shin. And I suppose it would be useful to add the Bortleray Hills into that because until very recently we had a few parcels on the Bortleray. And I do understand those ones. And those are shale soils. So that would add a third soil type and, and definitely worth discussing. So what I saw on the Bottleray with the shale soils is that the wines, they tended to have a chalkiness about them, which wasn't present in any of the other areas. So the wines sometimes weren't as long. So they would have slightly higher pH and a very particular kind of feeling, like quite a pithy, stony sort of feeling about them and almost a dirt road type of smell. No matter what we did, which vessel we used for fermentation, early pick, late pick, it always had that characteristic kind of mineral undertow, that slightly dirt road, chalky kind of feeling, and a very specific structure. And the wines were often quite deep, but definitely shorter than the other areas. So I've got a real soft spot for Bottleray. And I'm talking specifically about the shale soils in the Bottleray. There are also granite soils on the Bottleray hills, so I'm, I'm not speaking about those. That's closer towards Kopsicht and Moiplas and those places, there's a bit more granite down there. So those wines might be different to the shale soils that I'm talking about. We don't put Chenin Blanc on the front label because as much as I love the grape dearly, I, I want people to buy into the idea that South Africa really has amazing differences in geography and in place and, and the kind of landscapes that grow wine in South Africa vary dramatically within a few hundred kilometers. So we're able to, in our case, in our business, through the single vehicle of Chenin Blanc, we can offer loads of different experiences. A coastal Stellenbosch landscape tastes completely different to a mountainous Swatland landscape, for instance. And that's all through the vehicle of Shannon Blanc. So putting Shannon on the front label for me is kind of taking attention away from the place that I want people to, to get excited about first and foremost. Uh, hopefully understanding that that place is translated through Shannon Blanc in the same way that people understand that Chevalier Montrachet is translated through Chardonnay. You know, hopefully people understand that. One region that doesn't actually have much Shannon Blanc at all is the Cape South Coast. In fact, there are only 87 hectares planted. The area was generally not regarded as suitable to wine growing during the quantity-focused 20th century, and aside from a few exceptions, the KWV, which regulated the industry at the time, didn't allow vineyards to be planted there. So while it's home to some of South Africa's coolest wine growing areas, it by and large missed out on the Chenin Blanc boom. However, 
a few producers there are indeed working with it, and Beaumont is chief among them. So I'm Sebastian Beaumont from Beaumont Family Wines in Botrava, part of the Walker Bay Appalachian, southeast of Cape Town. Been here for a while, it's a family business. Got roped in as a young person and still here. So making, growing, farming, doing the whole thing. I would say we're by far the biggest producer of Chenin in the region. Our property was actually already developed, we think, in the 1940s. Two Lithuanian families and they built the winery and they planted vineyards. But that fell apart in the late 60s, probably due to one of those crises, but like what's happening at the moment. And they shut up their business and moved on. And then my parents bought it in the 70s and replanted all the vineyards and got a business going. We used to sell grapes primarily, actually to Hamilton Russell as well at the time. And then only as the markets opened up with the change in government in South Africa and that kind of also initiated the expansion of the whole Overberg region. If we look at it in slightly bigger terms, if we go to the Overberg, which is basically everything on the other side of the mountain that surrounds Stellenbosch and Cape Town, and you're heading out east, was very undeveloped up until the mid-90s in terms of wine production. So it was initially started off in the Walker Bay, which was started off by two kind of classic producers, Hamilton Russell and Bouchard Finnison. And they kicked off production or wine brands in the late 80s, early 90s, and were the pioneers of the cooler climate sites. And they initiated a massive movement of producers, growers, farmers, investors, looking for new regions to develop with uh, cooler climate sites. And that resulted in a massive growth in the region over the last 25 years or so. I think together with finding cooler climate sites, there was also a kind of a affordability of land, which uh, Stellenbosch had already become quite expensive. And so when people were buying old wheat farms and wild bush farms, they could get it at quite an affordable price to develop and expand on in a wine business kind of way. So that's a bit of the background. I think it's now we're sitting at about 80 odd wineries in the greater Cape South Coast, Overberg area. I'm not exactly sure. I think we were all encouraged as grape growers to plant Shannon, and that was pretty universal around the Western Cape. So our farm was already definitely planted to Shannon from before my parents' time. There were some beautiful old vineyards still here on the property, along with some Cinso or Hermitage. So there was Shannon in their region. But I remember my mother looking at it and in the early 90s, we were still selling most of our grapes to the cooperative in Villiersdorp. And we were getting, I think, 500 rand a ton or something like that. It was totally unviable, even though we had, I think, 70% Shannon planted on the farm and we had about 45 hectares of vineyard. And it was part of the reason for her starting our wine business up was to look at how we could add value to some beautiful old vineyards that were growing on the farm and producing some fantastic grapes. We got good feedback from the cooperative every year that the grapes are looking good and everything. And Hamilton Russell were buying some of our pinotage and they said it was really good stuff. So that's what kind of triggered her trying to make some wine and then developing the wine business slowly. So Shannon is in the region. We have 46-year-old vines planted at the moment. I have one four hectare block of that and a block planted in 78 and I know Wildekrantz also have some from the I think the late 70s or early 80s 
and Villion also has some vineyard from the 80s. I think they've just registered as an old vine vineyard. So there are these Shannon vineyards around, and luckily they were preserved and kept, but there are also quite a lot of new plantings. I know that properties like Harvest and in Elgin, there's a few properties that have planted Shannon, Art in Stanford and that kind of area. So there's bits of Shannon around. It was hard for it to compete in the 90s against Sauvignon Blanc. It was much easier to sell at the time. Shannon had that old association of being the workhorse of the industry used to make everything, which is a, a very sad but real truth of Shannon Blanc. I think it's slowly losing that tag as producers take it more seriously and as it's seen as something that South Africa can, can really produce great wines from and used as a great selling point in the market. I came in in 99. I joined the property and had finished studying. And my father was kind of looking to retire. And we had Niels Verberg, our neighbor at Luddite. He was the winemaker at the time. And he kind of knew that I was going to take over from him. And he started up his own brand while working for us. And I think I kind of got my teeth into the vineyard side of it and started trying to kind of understand what our viticulture was about and then assisted Niels at the time. And then when I took over from him after the 2003 harvest, I kind of was a little bit, I guess, frustrated a bit by the range of wines that we were producing. As a small producer, we were making a whole range of different white wines and, and a whole range of different red wines. And I kind of realized that we needed to create some focus for ourselves and become a specialist in something that would stand out. That's when I decided that I would discontinue making Sauvignon Blanc and discontinue making Chardonnays. I loved all the wines and we still obviously have the vineyards, but we just didn't bottle them as part of the Beaumont range. Much to the shock and horror of a few of our importers, because Sauvignon was just too easy to sell and Chardonnay was much easier to sell than Shannon still at that time. But I kind of knew instinctively that our Shannons were what we loved as a family in terms of the wines that we produced. They stood out, they consistently produced a certain quality and style, which differentiated ourselves from, we call it, other side of the mountain in terms of freshness and a slightly different fruit spectrum. We kind of had this idea that creating this focus on Shannon would be the right thing for us to do at that time. Definitely wasn't an easy thing and probably wasn't the right business decision, but we did it and I think now it's paying off. We're in a cooler climate and in some years it's significantly cooler, like in 2020 I think we've had quite a different season to the other side of the mountain. We had a lot of southeaster which Brings in a bit of rain, brings in a lot of overcast days and definitely much cooler weather. When I spoke to a few of my winemaking friends in Paul, Stellenbosch and in the Swartland, they were just saying, oh man, it's been hot and it's been dry and it's windy. And I'm standing here with a jacket and a jersey on. It is a unique thing and I think that's the amazing thing about the Cape is that you've got these microclimates that can be so extreme and so different within very short distance of each other. If you take Olgen, that's right next door to us, it's five, ten minutes drive from us and there just because of the altitude they have a slightly different climate and later picking season and different conditions that, that are both positive and negative in terms of growing quality grapes. And we down at the coast, very moderate, very close to the sea and that has its own kind of challenges, both from a humidity level, disease control. We had a bit of botrytis issues this year. So that always adds a bit of fun to it, but it dried out and I've got some really beautiful Shannons. And I think in terms of flavor spectrum, just in, in what we get and what over the years I've seen as differences, we're not as expressive on the fruit side of things. It doesn't get that 
really rich tropical kind of character that you can pick up from areas like the Paderbar. So we tend to get like greener fruits, higher natural acidities, slightly, I always say, more spicy flavors, kind of cinnamon and those clove characters, which complement the fruit, some dried fruits and those kind of characters on the aromatics. On the palates, generally good acidity, straightforward crunchiness. In the past couple of decades, there's been a growing interest in old vine vineyards in South Africa, a subject we'll be devoting a future episode to. Chenin Blanc is actually at the head of this trend. Almost 10% of the Cape's Chenin Blancs are considered to be old vines, meaning they were planted at least 35 years ago. That means there are more than 10 times the amount of old vine Chenin plantings than any other variety. Ken Forrester and Bouvier Rotz were among the first to label their Chenin Blancs old vine, and many of today's younger winemakers are also hunting down these vineyards. In terms of old vineyards, I've got two quite contrasting old vineyards. I've registered them both as single vineyards. One is called Gigi's Vineyard, and the other one's called Hope Vineyard, not Hope Marguerite, just Hope, because that was always been the core to our Hope Marguerite. And Gigi's Vineyard is the oldest. That's actually planted in 74, and Hope Vineyard was planted in 78. Gigi's Vineyard is showing a little bit more age than the Hope Vineyard. It's completely dry land, so it's got no irrigation on it. It's got a riper spectrum of fruit, so it's quite different to the Hope Vineyard, which in terms of flavors, fruit flavors, the Hope Vineyards gets much more of the kind of green apple crunch, green melon, that kind of flavor spectrum, whereas the Gigi's Vineyard gives more the tropical richer fruits. It ripens earlier. It's on sandier soils, so it's not such heavy soils, whereas the Hope Vineyard's on a much heavier, denser soil type of Bockelfeld shell. And then in comparison to the young vineyards uh, that we have, I've got one vineyard that really shows and has over the last 10 years shown really outstanding qualities and is slowly being introduced into the hope as a part of it. And that's a vineyard with mixed clones of Shannon planted on the kind of southern slope. It's a really great site and consistently producing very balanced grapes. I had Rissa Kruger come and looked last year and she was like, wow, this is the vineyard. She kind of raved more about this one than the older vineyards. And with that, I'm getting kind of a much broader spectrum of flavors, although they're much more consistent because it's ripening more evenly and you've got a more homogenous fruit spectrum on the vines, whereas the older vineyards, you get a bit more contradiction. They're almost like old bush vines. They're trellised, but the cordons are so far developed that they're They create this shaded inside fruit and kind of exposed outside fruit where you get quite heavily contrasting flavors, which I love because it builds complexity. It's part of what I like about our style and the kind of way I can get natural complexity in the wine. I think there's one thing just quickly is that this whole, there is a slight obsession with old vines. And I think it is a good thing to preserve good old vineyards. There are some old vineyards that are really fantastic. And and then you get old vineyards that you should pull them out. They don't produce interesting wine. And I found that in young vineyards, I picked some Shannon this year from a first crop vineyard. And it was really, it's produced outstanding fruit. On old vine Shannon versus young vine Shannon, it's actually quite a well-timed question because we've now been working with um, one young vineyard in particular on my friend Donnie Karinas's farm. And we do have medium-term plans to get into actually releasing young vine shin because I'm going to be planting some young vineyards on our farm in the Swatla. 
And one of our Skirchbach farmers is dead keen to plant some young vines as well. So the point is we're going to have young vines to work with and we need to make wine out of those. I've had two vintages, three vintages now, making wine from that young vineyard of Darnies in Stellenbosch. And I've got, to, I've got to tell you, as a real kind of advocate for old vineyards, I just love the history and the heritage and, and the natural quality that you can get from old vines. I was, I think, blown away is, is probably not an overstatement. I was really amazed at the quality that we were getting from Donnie's Young Vineyard. It got me really excited for the idea of planting good material in South Africa. We've got our own DNA down here in Shannon and some of the old Shannon selections. For instance, SN24 is an unbelievable selection. It's, it's an extremely, extremely high quality selection. And that's something that Dani has planted. So we're finding incredible results from a very good young material planted in, on, on good sites. Also, old uh, Brevar Ratz, who's, who's done a lot for Shannon in South Africa, he lives next door to Dani and planted that high-density young vine. I think he's calling the wines Eden and getting fantastic reviews for those wines from very young vineyards. I find it very exciting in the cafe that we can look at new sites that maybe haven't been looked at before, new soils, new places, and design excellent vineyards for those places. and then. You know, even the young vineyard will be good, and when it's eventually 40 years old, it'll be really something special. Even being able to have the old vine conversation is a luxury that didn't exist a few decades ago. At that time, South African wine growing was focused on quantity. It took a quality focus to show what South Africa's Chenin Blanc's vineyards were truly capable of. And of course, changes happened with the winemaking as well. It's these changes that have transformed Chenin Blanc from the workhorse to the thoroughbred it is today. For us, it was back to basic viticulture, to understanding vertical shoot positioning because most of our vines were trellised. Some of the bush vines, obviously, there are a lot of old bush vines. But looking in the trellis vineyards, it was all about vertical shoot positioning. And then it was also about looking at yields and getting even ripeness and specifically concentrating fruit into a fruiting zone and looking at the timing of your berry set to ensure that you did get the most harmonious berry set, that all of your fruit was developed almost within the same week, so that that way, within three months' time after that, you would end up being able to harvest fruit that was equally or evenly ripe. And it was about being able to pick that fruit where you still had sufficient acidity without the vine being totally stressed there's this wicked, wicked nightmare concept that vines need to be stressed to produce quality. That is absolute bulldash. I've never heard such nonsense in my whole life. You might as well go and stress a pregnant woman. You're going to get the similar sort of results. You might get hit over the head with a frying pan. It's just not a good idea to stress your vineyard. And your vineyard shouldn't be in stress. So you, you can try and stay out of that zone by not overloading it and just making sure that it's actually physically able to carry the crop that it's carrying. And so yield management was critical. Picking on even ripeness was critical. Looking at green harvest prior to the actual full harvest and getting rid of any bunches that might not have been as ripe was critical. Just paying attention to the vineyard and trying to get to the point where we have 17 leaves for every berry on every ripening shoot was the kind of whacked out stuff we were doing putting moisture sensors into the ground to see how much moisture we had in the ground to see if we needed to irrigate. We researched as much as we could to try and give the vines the most optimum growing conditions. So it was really all about viticulture. So I figured out that the best Shannon I'd ever tasted had been from the Loire Valley. Uh, I should go and do a pilgrimage and head it off to the Loire. 
and met a fellow called Bernard Germain. Bernard Germain was Chateau de Fell, and Chateau de Fell, just outside Angers, is the most amazing site, the most wonderful property. And I worked with him in his cellar for a couple of vintages. I did two vintages there and had the most amazing time and learned so much from him. And he was a pretty controversial creature at the time, way ahead of his time. And he was fermenting Chenin Blanc in 400-liter French oak barrels and using the barrels generally in a kind of five-year cycle. So he was introducing 20% new oak each year. And it was just unheard of for Chenin Blanc to be in oak. It was crazy. And when I brought some of those barrels down here to South Africa and started fermenting Shannon in barrels, one of my colleagues said to me, you're not from here, are you? I said, no, 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 I'm from Johannesburg. He said, that's interesting because I hope you got a return ticket because this could be a bad idea. I'm not sure you should be doing Shannon Blanc in barrels. And <laughs> that was the start of what we did in 1995. Our first Shannon Blanc we released 25 years ago, was partially barrel fermented. There were one or two other guys that had done some experiments. One of them had kind of worked for a brief time for Anglo-American at Oshendal. He'd taken over and worked for a short time there. And one of his experiments was a barrel-aged Shannon Blanc, barrel-fermented Shannon. And then there was one other guy working at, also in Stonebosch, Jean Daniel, working at Morgan Hoff. And he was doing some, but they were basically experimental I don't, well, Boschendal didn't continue and Morganoff, I don't believe, did either. But I went on to make a kind of unique, special thing out of barrel fermented Shannon and mm-hmm. extended the range of Shannons and went to our oldest vineyard and brought out the FMC, which was the Forester Minor Shannon, the FMC. And the idea there was really to try and produce something that could compete on the stage as one of the best white wines in the world. And um, I wasn't in any way or manner perturbed that it was Shannon and not Chardonnay or not Riesling or not whatever it could have, should have, would have been. I just figured that there was space for Shannon to compete in that worldwide stage and produce something that was iconic and standout and that would actually work and make people really, really impressed. So that's what we set out to do with the FMC. So the regular Shannon, I've always seen as our kind of introduction to Beaumont. It's normally the first wine that we pour when you come and visit us. I love the style of wine. It is unoaked. It's quite direct and straightforward. It's got very pure fruit. I opened the 2012 a few days ago, and it's like bright and absolutely delicious still. It's quite a precise style in terms of the way that I make it. I'm aiming for 12 and a half at the most, 13 alcohol, which is the same for Hope Marguerite, but it's more important that I get that kind of freshness for it at a lower alcohol. And then just try and manage the ferment to keep the purity. Shannon during ferment can become quite reductive if you don't watch it. So I use most of it as inoculated yeast. And so I do very straightforward pressing, take to tank, settle, and, and then rack it over a few days, take it to the fermentation tank, which either be in concrete or in stainless steel and it'll ferment with a combination of yeast. Some of them are inoculated yeast and some are natural yeast. Probably the best portion this year out of the 2020 juice is the natural ferment portion, which will make up about a third of the total 
volume of our unwooded chenin. And so really, really gives it a little bit slower ferment and, and you get a bit more spectrum of flavor out of the ferment, which was really good. But the fruit was super healthy. And so you always have to judge each vintage according to what you're getting off the vineyard. So that's the unwooded chenin. So very direct, always a good acidity, but not searing like in Sauvignon Blanc. I think it's just slightly toned down acidity, sometimes with a hint of residual sugar. That depends on the ferment and whether it's fermented completely dry, especially with the natural ferments. Just to sometimes it masks that phenolic, always kind of call it pithiness. That's in Shannon that you get that kind of apple pith kind of character. So a little bit of RS, just three to four grams, just, just masks that over. And then you take Hope Marguerite in contrast. This year we picked Gigi's Vineyard in three different portions with the ready, the riper portion or the earlier ripening piece first, then the slightly more vigorous sections after that. So it just depends on where the vineyard is. And each year I look at it slightly differently, but it's fairly consistent that there's a section which we pick earlier. And then I'm also trying to get to 12 and a half. I found that our style really shows well at that kind of alcohol level. You get that lovely acidity and freshness, and especially when it's got time in barrel, it helps to keep the wine very linear and focused. Uh, and you'll see that in like 2018, actually in all the even years in the last few. So if you go back to 2012, 12, 14, 16, 18, are all quite linear and very focused, whereas the odd years have had a bit more inconsistency in terms of what the vintage produced with RS and a bit of botrytis in 13, quite a rich vintage in 15, just because that was 15, and 17, beautiful balance between sweetness and richness, and then uh, 19, which is just about to be released, has the highest RS I've had in a few years, which is at about eight grams. So that's just because the natural ferments, it's completely natural ferment. I'm not inoculating any of the juice. And I, I let it ferment in the way until it's dry or almost dry or whatever in the barrel stop. I want it to be in the expression of the vintage. I want it to capture the vintage in as pure a way as possible. And if that means that the sugar imbalances are slightly out and the ferment doesn't kind of ferment completely dry, then that's the way it is. So that's how I see it. I keep the barrels full for as long as possible and empty for as short as possible. So you're basically racking out just before the next harvest and then filling up the barrels straight away as soon as you get your new juice. So you've got an open empty time of about a month, which allows you to keep old barrels for much longer without them losing their freshness. That's something I find more important than taking the wine out of barrel at exactly the right time. That's kind of the other extreme of that. So I look at trying to do that every year and then make up the blend of the different portions. And then if I have some barrels that have this kind of sweetness, do they go in or not? That depends on the vintage. And whether I still see that there's kind of a line between the previous vintages. And if it doesn't draw a line, then I've obviously got to keep those barrels separate. So it's always about 15% new wood at the most. I like a bit of the new wood portion because it just keeps the barrels very clean and got that kind of rollover of newer barrels coming in each year. And a little bit of New York is not a bad thing. But Shannon doesn't generally respond well to New York, and especially not my style. So you won't find me using a lot of New York. The only complete contradiction to that would be my CWG Guild wine, which I only had one choice. It was a skin ferment Shannon that I made, and nobody's ever commented on the oaking of it. So there's never ever commented.
that it was New York, but it was 100% New York. But I've, I've got a very good cooper that I work with from France, and they supply beautiful 400-litre barrels that are so subtle and elegant. And that was two years of barrel, so it always depends on the wine as well. So the way we make wine now is still the same. We farm a certain way, and in the winery we whole cluster press everything, and we don't use any sulfur until close to bottling, and then we don't use very much sulfur. And obviously we don't add anything at all. It's just grape juice that turns into wine. With that philosophy, we don't like putting makeup on the wine. New oak and all that stuff is completely out. We don't do anything like that. We're very heavily invested in Shannon. Shannon is an amazing vehicle for expressing the different landscapes of the Cape, and not just from a heritage point of view, but the fact that it's such a transparent grape in a figurative sense. If you were to visit our, our winery and come and taste through our barrels and our casks and even a, a, a tasting, if I could just show somebody a tasting of four of our Shenans in a row from different places, different terroirs, it, it's immediately abundantly clear that we're dealing with four or five completely different wines. And the only real difference is where they come from, the soil type and the, and the plate. So Shenan for me, it's extremely important as a heritage piece. But it's also a wonderful coincidence that it's such a fantastic vehicle or express or of place. I think Shannon in the Cape is definitely something that now is viewed as extremely valuable because it gives us that real sense of something regional and something special that belongs to us. It's also, having said that now, critically important to remember that it looks like it's been here since the 1650s. So you have to imagine generations and generations of farmers selecting plants and propagating vineyards using selection muscle. And over time, there must be a genetic drift away from the original type that, that landed here on the boat. So the thing about Shannon now here is that it provides us an opportunity to offer something to the world that is very South African, and not only in climate and in soil and in place, but also in DNA. I think that's important to remember. South Africa's Chenin Blancs are becoming increasingly popular here in the U.S., crossing party lines to appeal to all sorts of white wine drinkers. To get a U.S. perspective, I spoke to Hai Tran, who is known either as the hip-hop enthusiast with a penchant for Chenin, or more commonly, the sommelier at Barclay Prime in Philadelphia. Hi, nice to talk to you. Pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me on. So, hi, what was your first experience with South African wine? My first exposure is actually very relevant to what we're about to talk about. I was really first exposed to uh, South African, African Chenin Blanc with a bottle of Tim Forster Old Vine Chenin Blanc, not even knowing that that he's considered to be one of the godfathers of Chenin Blanc in, in South Africa. Uh, I was trying to explore and broaden my horizons, and it was something that was kind of in the price point at the time. This was early on. I saw the label quite a bit in a lot of different stores, and I was like, well, let's see what this is all about. I've never had a really uh, South African wine. And when I cracked up the bottle open and enjoyed it, it was really, wow, this is really very well-made, high-quality wine. And I can't believe I only paid less than $10 for this. But that kind of seed for me that I wanted to explore a little bit more. And what really kind of added a fuel to the fire was something that you did for me, sending me out to London for a trade expo event. One of the countries being featured was South Africa and being exposed to all that South African wine and seeing a broad scope of what's going on in the country without actually being in the country was a, not only a mind-opening, but a very palate-opening experience for me. Sommelier training often starts with France, so most sommeliers learn about Chenin Blanc in that context first. Was that how it was for you? Yes, yeah, definitely. When you're studying to be a psalm, what you see for Chenin Blanc is going to be more value. You're looking at Rouvray, looking at 
Sauvignon and Summer and so on and so forth. And so that's what to me was what I took as the benchmark for Chenin but tasting South African was like, oh, okay, this is another way that Chenin can express itself. And it's kind of interesting to see the diversity based on where the Chenin grown. And it was only later that I really discovered how backward I had it because I always thought that, you know, Chenin Blanc, okay, it's, it's, it's a Loire, it's French, it's not meant to be anywhere else. Or, you know, if it wasn't to be anywhere else, it's just something that's being adopted as opposed to in South Africa where they truly embraced it. And now it's the dominant area that's growing Chenin Blanc. It's quite wild and mind-blowing, a really kind of a paradigm shift. From your point of view, are there any fundamental differences you can taste between Loire Valley wines and South Africa Shannons? It really depends on what we're talking about, because I think with the Loire Valley, you typically get a higher expression of minerality. It typically is a different quality to the fruit as well that you don't get in South Africa. And I think in South Africa, there's a little bit more, not just terroir expression, but it also is a little bit of a hand of the winemaker. So I think there's a tendency to see new oak utilized with Chenin Blanc uh, a bit more in um, South Africa versus uh, what you see in the Loire Valley. Aside from the climatic differences, South Africa's soils are also quite different from those of the Loire and quite varied among themselves. Does that show in the wines? Definitely. I think it makes a difference between what type of soils that the Chenin Blanc is being grown on, whether it be on more like granite or limestone-based soils versus, say, I think two of these that you set up for us are uh, grown on, on different types of shale, and I think those also express themselves differently. The beautiful thing about Chenin Blanc, I think, is, is that it's also a really beautiful canvas to showcase terroir. It does things like that, like Riesling does. It picks up its terroir, showcases the soils it's grown on, and Chenin Blanc does that too, whether it's grown in the Loire Valley or in South Africa or in California, so... I think there's definitely something to be said about the variety of being able to showcase um, the diversity of the soils that's grown on. And when I got interested and excited about South African Chenin Blanc, there's a lot to discover in that regards. Where should someone who's new to South African Chenin Blanc start then? I think it's kind of the same, same way how I got my start in Chenin Blanc. And I think you should start in, in Stellenbosch, A, because it's an appellation that most Americans would be familiar with, so it would be less intimidating. And then it's also um, made in a way that I think a lot of the Stellenbosch Chenin Blancs, typically the ones that I tried are, have been made in that kind of crisp, lean, bright, refreshing way that makes it very approachable. It, can, it doesn't necessarily need to have food with it. It's pretty easy to understand. It's a great corollary. Someone likes you know, Sauvignon Blanc or wants to try something a little different. Introducing them to something like the Ken Forrester is not too far of a stretch. I think it's something that's an easy introduction in that regards. I would also add it would also be a great addition for the Pinot Grigio drinker because I think when people that drink to really drink Pinot Grigio, they, they want something that's crisp, refreshing, but maybe not too heavy, but not too light. Kind of something that's a beautiful, almost Goldilocks type of just right element. I think Chenin Blanc can also deliver that element too, where it just hits on all those notes. Hi, I, I sent over a few Chenins to refresh your palate with current vintages. So how were they? I'd love to start with the, the Rats Old Vine Chenin Blanc. The thing I, lo- I love about this is, and the thing I love about South African wines is, that first and foremost, like the price. It's amazing quality of the wine that you get for very little money. Where can you find like, old vine, anything for the price point that this comes in at? And I think this is a brilliant refresher. A little bit lean, a little crisp, but uh, I think the old vines adds a little bit something. That I've had the, the Rats original a lot, and it reminds me a little bit of that, but it has a little bit extra weight. It has a little bit more extra, like this subtle kind of like oatmeal, floral, tea-like quality to it slight kind of honeycomb element to it. I think it adds a nice kind of textural component combined with that amazing freshness that I think is a trademark of what Rats does with the Chenin Blanc.
I think it also showcases the soil that's grown on. It has like things of kind of like granite and sandstone soils. So there's this lift and freshness to it and amazing acidity that just once you go back for another glass. So that's the Rots Old Vine Chenin Blanc, which that's been in the U.S. market for a while and has a pretty good presence here. The next wine is actually new to the U.S. The Cape of Good Hope line comes from Anthony Rupert and is devoted to single vineyard wines from all over the Western Cape. In this case, we sent you the Rebix Revere Chenin Blanc from their farm in Swartland. Was the contrast between Stellenbosch and Swartland clear in the glass? It was a nice contrast because there's definitely some similarities, but side by side, you really catch on a little bit of like what Swartland has to offer. I think there's a little more of that Swartland sunshine. The fruit's a little bit richer, it's a little more fleshier. I also feel like that this particular wine showcases a little bit of oak regiment a little bit more than the rot. So you have a little more textural components on the palate. It's a little more rounder. It has a little more weight, sits a little heavier. I didn't know at the time, but when I checked alcohol, it comes in at 14 and a half versus the rats, 13 and a half. So for alcohol percentage more, it showcases that in a nice balance. The city helps carry that, but yet you still get a little bit of that richness, that weight that comes, I think, from Chen growing on shale. And the third wine. This is one we've already talked about earlier in the podcast, the Beaumont Hope Marguerite, named for Sebastian's grandmother. How is the 2018 showing? It's an absolute stunner. Shannon gives me a little bit of everything of those last two had, but it adds a little extra. I think Sebastian Beaumont, the winemaker, he's done an amazing job of utilizing the oak. This is the first one that I feel that gives you a little bit of the Loire Valley, but with a South African flair. Uh, it has that nice nuttiness with that oatmeal quality I was talking about with the ruts, but it also has a, a, a leafy quality to it and like that gives you that little bit more textural, gives you the more aromatic, gives you a little more the palate. And this is one of those wines that I can't wait to see what happens with it with a few more years on it. All these wines I think will age really beautifully, but this is going to be something very, very interesting. It's one of those wines I would love to pour blind with someone that's strictly, I only drink like white burgundy and so forth and see if I can get them to be excited about and change their perception on uh, what's going on in South Africa. I think it has just amazing complexity and depth to it. And I was looking at the process of making the wine and so forth. And it's wild you know, that it does see as much in the oak as it does, but yet it does, you don't feel it and you don't taste it on the palate. So I think it's kind of cool. Now, two of these three wines are actually from Old Vine Vineyards, and the Cape of Good Hope's vineyards are almost old enough to qualify. Do you think Old Vine Shannon delivers something special? I think there's definitely something to be said for old vine Chen Blanc. There's this X factor that comes from the old vines. There's a little more richness, a little more saviness that you don't get from some of the younger vine expressions of Chen Blanc. There's a depth that you just can't replace with something else. Do you have any final thoughts for your peers who might want to learn more about these wines? You got to try more. I think it's something that we as a community should continue to keep our human lines open on. And I think whether you work in fine dining or whether you work in a more casual spot, there's a place on the list and at your table for these wines. I think the same for retail shops. I think if I was to pour these for guests, I can definitely find a great following. And I think it's awesome that you pick these old vine ones because you can find some really amazing value for your, your dollar with these wines. Hope you enjoyed this episode's look at South Africa's flag bearer grape, Chenin Blanc, a grape I'm sure we'll come back to. You can find more resources and links at our website, wosa.us. Links there include the producers we spoke with, the Chenin Blanc Association, and Barclay Prime, where Hytran runs a great wine program with plenty of exciting South African options. Also on the website, check out the Wines of South Africa Psalm session, 
If you want to learn more about South African wines, here's your chance. Just get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer. Have each one pick up a bottle of South African wine beforehand, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. As promised, next episode we're going to focus on the Hamelinarda, Heaven and Earth. It's a small corner of the Western Cape that punches well above its weight, especially when it comes to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. There is good reason some have called it South Africa's Burgundy. Thank you.